Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 25th of February 2022. From the comment section... Michael Gove's levelling up agenda undermines Scottish democracy. By Richard Walker, columnist. If Michael Gove had even the slightest desire to build bridges with MSPs worried about Westminster's power grab, he certainly didn't show it when he appeared before Holyrood's Finance Committee on Thursday. The Secretary of State for levelling up was trying hard to appear reasonable. A hard task when his job was essentially to justify Westminster moves which can only be interpreted as a bid to diminish the Scottish Parliament's powers and undermine the generally high regard in which it is hailed by voters north of the border. The attack and devolution has been carried out under the cover of Brexit, which may have been pushed out of the headlines by other matters recently, but has left us reeling from its disastrous impact on the UK economy. It has dramatically reduced exports, particularly Scottish exports, and introduced time-wasting complications in a process which was previously smooth and efficient. It has damaged relationships with our neighbours and put in peril peace in Northern Ireland. It's hard to think of any single issue which has brought us many serious problems in its wake. But Boris Johnson's Tories still cling to one potential upside. They hope that by snatching control of the money once distributed by Europe and Scotland and claiming the credit for the new projects north of the border, they have a realistic chance of stemming the growth and support for independence. Let's be clear, the Tory plan to replace European funding for Scottish projects has nothing to do with the best interests of this country and everything to do with countering what the UK government perceive as the annoying popularity of the Scottish government. When Labour backed the principle of devolution and the reconvening of the Scottish Parliament in the late 1990s, it believed it was, it was still ever more insistent calls for devolution. After all, it argued, it would give Scots more powers but retain the comfort of remaining within the Union. The years since the Scottish Parliament began sitting again have demolished that argument. The support for the SNP has grown to the extent that it has been in power at Holyrood since 2007 and has been the unchallenged dominant force in Scottish politics since then. The pro-independence side did not quite manage to win the day in the first independence referendum of 2014 but support for the cause has been growing since then. It's no wonder that Boris Johnson is known to believe that devolution has been a disaster. Although the farce that has followed Brexit has been one of the drivers of the growing support for independence, the Prime Minister still believes that his departure from Europe offers him a major opportunity to dampen enthusiasm for Indiref 2, which is exactly why he wants to plaster the UK flag over all manner of spending projects financed by the cash which would have previously been distributed through the EU. Between 2014 and 2020, the Scottish Government received €944 million Euros from the EU's structural and investment funds, predominantly through the Rural Development Fund and the Social Fund. 
That money should have been replaced through extra spending power for the Scottish Parliament. That way it could have been used according to the priorities agreed by MSPs we actually voted for. Instead, the UK government took control of the cash through their UK Share Prosperity Fund, which sits alongside a Westminster levelling up white paper. Altogether, this will provide £2.6 billion across the UK, but what we don't yet know how much Scotland will get and what criteria will be applied to determine that. Most of the paper applies to England only, and the UK government has said only that it hopes to lead on delivery in reserve policy areas and work collaboratively with devolved governments in devolved areas. That's not a lot of detail. To make matters worse, the UK Internal Market Act, passed after the UK left the EU, gives the UK government an effective veto over anything the Scottish Parliament does that clashes with its own plans. Claire Adamson, the convener of Holyrood's Constitutional Committee, has already warned the Act effectively removes the Scottish Parliament's ability to act in many devolved areas. Gove's relatively mild-mannered response to questions at Holyrood's Finance Committee meeting yesterday couldn't quite cover up the fact that most of the detail in the moves to replace EU funding had been a mess. He admitted there had been problems allowing local authorities enough time to properly submit bids and had to face down claims that councils might be left out of pocket buying in the expertise to put together bids which might ultimately fail. The system of deciding which areas would benefit from extra cash was also mired in confusion. Areas deemed to deserve the highest priority would be first in the queue for the cash but wouldn't necessarily get it. He denied the suggestions that MPs, or indeed MSPs, would have a veto in decisions to fund projects, although their support would be a very powerful additional force to be reckoned with. However, projects deemed worthwhile by Westminster would be considered on their own merits and maintain that winning the cash even if local representatives opposed them. Gove had to admit that even the system for allocating priorities was a muddle. The Highlands and Islands somehow ended up with the same lower priority status as the City of London, one of the richest areas in the UK. How did that happen? Because the people making the decisions in London don't know enough about the areas affected. Just as the people deciding which projects should be given the green light don't know enough about the needs of areas in which the projects are based. There's an obvious solution to these problems. Give the responsibility to the Scottish Government. Michael Gove tried several times to insist that Westminster was determined to work with local authorities and the Scottish Government, but the facts tell a different story. The Scottish Government has been kept firmly out of the loop while these decisions have been taken elsewhere. Worse, this is no accident. It was a deliberate exclusion by a party in power at Westminster, but with no hope of winning anything like a majority at Westminster. There is no moral argument for leaving major spending decisions to a party with so little public support while refusing to consult with a government with such considerable backing. Also left out in the cold are organisations who depend on these funding decisions for their very existence and yet have not been given the information they have asked for. When Gove was challenged about these delays, all he delivered were the usual empty promises. The levelling up department may have fallen down on a job just now, but we're expected to believe matters will dramatically improve in the future. On top of all these mistakes, 
We're no further forward in ringing assurances from London politicians that Scotland will not emerge from this whole fiasco with less money than before. The Scottish Government suggests the end result will be a shortfall of at least £138 million per year. When pressed on that issue, Gove delivered a defence staggeringly under the weight of a blitz of acronyms which obscured any meaning. There was something about legacy spending dipping while the new share prosperity fund increased. What that all mean for bottle line comparisons remains to be seen. What's clear is that Gove, Johnson and her cronies want to strip powers from the Scottish Government in a deliberate bid to limit Holyrood's effectiveness. That same ambition is behind a call from Gove that the Scottish Government should devolve more of its remaining powers to local authorities. Which is a bit rich coming from a politician whose party is desperately trying to bring more and more devolved powers back under control. It's a warning shot which, combined with Gove's increasing determination to deal with local councils over the head of the Scottish Parliament, makes it more imperative than ever that the upcoming council elections deliver a strong and clear message to Westminster. Get your hands off Scottish democracy. And that was a comment piece by Richard Walker. This article is from The National, date 25th February 2022. From the News section. Champions League final moved from Russia to Paris by Emilia Kettle. Paris will now be the host city for the 2022 Champions League final after Russia was stripped of the match following the nation's invasion of Ukraine. The final match of Europe's most popular club competition was set to take place in St Petersburg on Saturday, May 28th. But following a meeting on Friday, UEFA confirmed the match would no longer be held at the Gazprom Arena. Now, the European football governing body has made the decision to instead hold the match at the Stade de France in Paris. In a statement released by the football body, they wanted to express their thanks and appreciation to the French Republic President Emmanuel Macron for his personal support and commitment to have European club football's most prestigious game moved to France at the time of unparalleled crisis. They added, together with the French government, UEFA will fully support multi-stakeholder efforts to ensure the provision of rescue for football players and their families in Ukraine who face dire human suffering, destruction and displacement. UEFA also said they have decided that Russian and Ukrainian clubs and nations teams competing in the UEFA competitions will be required to play their home matches at neutral venues until further notice. That article was by Emilia Kettle. This article is from The National, date 25th February 2022, from the News section. Russian Invasion UK fails to set up route for Ukrainians as thousands flee. By Craig Meehan. Britain has failed to set up a route for Ukrainian refugees to reach the UK. It has emerged. Despite a full-scale invasion by Russia, the UK government has stopped accepting visa applications from Ukrainian citizens stuck in the nation. This means there is no safe and legal route for Ukrainians to seek asylum in the UK unless they have relatives here. 
It comes as 137 people reportedly died in the country following strikes by Russia, including explosions in the capital, Kiev. Home Secretary Priti Patel announced visa concession for Ukrainians already in the UK for work, study and tourism, extending the time they have before they have to leave. But no resettlement scheme has been announced for refugees fleeing Ukraine. Amid the invasion, the US has warned up to 5 million people could be displaced, with Poland alone preparing itself for up to 1 million refugees. The UN Refugee Agency has warned of devastating humanitarian consequences from the war. Boris Johnson has said 1,000 troops have been put on standby to help the humanitarian exodus in near neighbouring countries and said his government is helping UK nationals. But the Home Office has said Ukrainian nationals in Ukraine, who haven't immediate family members of British nationals normally living in Ukraine or where the British national is living in the UK, are currently unable to make visa applications to visit, work, study or join family in the UK. The UK Visa Application Centre in Kiev has now been closed, with all related services suspended in the Ukrainian capital. Dependents with UK nationals can apply in the city of Lviv. However, those in Ukraine without close relatives in Britain will only be able to obtain a UK visa if they manage to reach centres in Poland, Romania, Hungary or Moldova. It comes as lines formed at border crossings with people seen carrying backpacks and dragging suitcases on Thursday. That came just hours after Russian tanks crossed Ukraine's eastern border. Johnson's spokesperson said, In terms of refugees, obviously it's relatively early at the moment, but we have provided support already to help at the border should we start to see a humanitarian crisis emerge, and obviously we are ready to deploy that. That article was by Craig Meehan. This article is from The National, date 28th February 2022, from the Culture section. Gogglebox viewers demand subtitles for new Glasgow couple Roseanne and Joe. By Rebecca Newlands, digital journalist. Gogglebox has welcomed its first Scottish couple in six years, but their debut has been met with some issues. On Friday night, Glasgow couple Roseanne, 23, and Joe, 25, gave their thoughts on programmes, including Sunday Morning, Love is Blind, and Teen First Dates. However, some viewers were left struggling to understand the pair's accents and even took to social media, calling for subtitles to be used for their scenes. One person wrote, can we have subtitles for the Scots and Gogglebox, please? Another added, had to switch on my subtitles when the new Scottish couple spoke. A third asked, sorry, but can we have subtitles on Gogglebox for the new couple? Despite some issues, many viewers were delighted to see some Scottish representation on Gogglebox. One wrote, well done, Gogglebox, for putting pure Scottish on and giving them no subtitles, the way it should be. Another said, enjoying the authentic Scottish folk on Gogglebox, 
you can tell by the liberal yet skillful use of profanities. Rosanne and Joe's introduction to the show comes after complaints about the lack of Scots on the popular Channel 4 show. The issue was even raised in the House of Commons by Tory MP Douglas Ross during the Scottish Affairs Committee session. Gogglebox is on Friday evenings at 9pm on Channel 4. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. This article is from The National, date 28th February 2022, from the Politics section. UNCRC, Bill to come back to Holyrood after Supreme Court defeat. By Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The Scottish Government has pledged to again take up the fight to defend children's rights after Tory opposition. John Swinney has written to the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack, vowing the SNP would reintroduce a bill to incorporate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, into Scots law after it was defeated in the Supreme Court last year. The UK government had taken Nicola Sturgeon's administration to court over the bill, which was passed unanimously by MSPs, because it fell out with the Scottish Parliament's legislative competence. The bill was intended to extend and enhance human rights protections in Scotland and to empower young people to defend their own rights. Swinney told the Scottish Office the disappointment over the court's ruling from October 2021 was felt acutely across Scotland, especially by our children and young people. He said civil servants were working on ways to change the bill to make it work within Holyrood's powers but told Jack the UK government should change its position to allow the bill to come into force as originally passed by Scottish Parliament. Swinney added, So we have also identified potential routes to increasing the effectiveness of incorporation beyond those that are now available to the Scottish Parliament alone. These include ensuring that UK acts in devolved areas, such as education, are subject to the UNCRC and that the Scottish Parliament can make all legislation within its legislative competence meaningfully subject to international human rights standards. He urged Scotland Office officials to meet with the Scottish Government as soon as possible to discuss possible strategies for working to protect children's rights in law. In the meantime, the government will reintroduce the bill to Holyrood with changes that reflect the Supreme Court's ruling from last year. The bill would give Scottish courts the ability to strike down laws that harmed children's rights and promised to hold public bodies accountable to young people but it was ruled that the bill in the form it was passed would give Scottish ministers power over reserved policy areas and was therefore not acceptable in its current form. The UK government was approached for comment. That article was by Hamish Morrison. From The National, Monday the 28th of February 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, 
We must do all we can to protect the Scottish NHS and its staff. By Kirsty Strickland, columnist. Mercifully, I've not had any reason to use Scotland's NHS, beyond routine appointments and vaccinations, for a number of years. Last Thursday, I picked up my seven-year-old from school and it quickly became clear that her lucky health streak had come to an abrupt end. She was in agony. The ten-minute walk home from school took much longer, as we stopped and started and she doubled over from acute pain in her stomach. She said that it had started at the end of the school day. She had tried to tell the teacher, but the teacher was otherwise engaged, giving somebody a row, so she didn't want to bother her. I've never seen my daughter so distressed before. She wasn't just sore, she was angry too. She was absolutely raging like I couldn't soothe with if it was that was causing her so much pain. When we eventually got home, I lay her down on the couch and phoned the doctor. I wasn't expecting much. I dreamed about how Covid had meant it's impossible to get an appointment with your GP when you need one. The receptionist said the doctor would phone me back and, half an hour later, she did. She told me to bring the wee one along to see her straight away. Our GP surgery is at the end of our road. I can see it from our house, but as I helped my daughter sit up to put her shoes on, she vomited from the pain of moving. It was clear that walking to the GP was out of the question, so I carried her the whole way, all the time cursing myself for not having lifted anything heavier than a glass of wine or a bag of hula hoops for the last two years. Upon arrival, the doctor declared that my deathly pale, furious wee glasses and girl didn't look very well at all. After some poking and prodding, she decided that we were either dealing with a nasty urine infection or appendicitis. She told us to go home, take the first dose of antibiotics she had prescribed, that my wonderful neighbour walked through the snow and the sleep to pick up for me, and, if there was no improvement by 9pm, to take her straight to the hospital. That time came and it was clear she was getting worse. So I bundled her into a taxi and took her to the children's a and at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. Again, I was expecting long waits from frazzled staff, but it was seamless. We were taken straight in to be seen. The first doctor did some tests and cajoled my cowpaw-resistant daughter to gobble a full dose. She explained that the logistics of taking a urine sample and managed to raise the first smile of the night. Another doctor walked to walked us to the waiting bay, did all the tests and answered the many questions my seven-year-old had in her first visit to the hospital. When my gallus wee girl advised the doctor that the baby she could hear crying was probably constipated, the doctor nodded solemnly and promised she would investigate. A few hours, lots of tests and some apple juice and jelly later, a diagnosis of a urine infection was delivered and gratefully received. Without me having to ask, they handed over different antibiotics than the GP had prescribed. This was the good stuff and it wouldn't be a battle to convince my daughter to take. Fluorescent pink, bubblegum scented and in all likelihood packed full of sugar, this was a medicine she could get on board with. When we got home shortly after midnight the wee one fell into a deep sleep beside me. I poured a glass of red wine, purely for medicinal purposes, I feel a similar sense of awe to that which I experienced when I witnessed the logical, logistical brilliance of the vaccine rollout firsthand. Despite the undeniable pressures the surface is under, the whole process, from the first phone call to the person who was there to meet us at the doors of the hospital, 
was faultless. And we under no illusion that our experience is illustrative of everybody else's. We know that throughout the pandemic, the NHS has come under enormous strain as demand has increased and the workforce has experienced the same COVID-related staff absences as other public services. We didn't need an ambulance and so, thankfully, didn't face the same problems that others have had with long waiting times. And my daughter's, ail- my daughter's ailment, though distressing and painful for her, wasn't a serious one or complicated to diagnose. But I still find immensely grateful for their care and expertise. Our NHS is a glittering jewel in Scotland's crown and we should do everything we can to not only support the service but to properly appreciate and reward all the people who keep it running for the benefit of us all. And that was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. From The National Monday the 28th of February 2022 From the Opinion section Ukrainians are fleeing and all UK offers is a job picking fruit by columnist Stephen Payton. As I sit down to begin tapping away at this column in the sunshine of a quiet Sunday morning in Glasgow, it's with the heavy knowledge that simultaneously Russian troops are entering into the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Great plumes of toxic fumes are poisoning the air after a gas pipeline outside of the city was set ablaze by soldiers where rockets fall upon oil depots near the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Its residents advise to keep their windows and doors shut fast against a background of wailing sirens. The unfolding horrors in the Ukraine and the stories of defiant resistance from its citizens in the face of Putin's invasion should be the catalyst for a global movement of solidarity against a bully and a violent propagandist. Yet the powers of Britain have instead revealed themselves once again to be far more interested in fanning the flames of its tritely named, given the circumstances, culture war over a pragmatic humanitarian response to Ukraine. Before going further, I want to make a very clear distinction between the people living in the UK and the institutions that govern them. Politically, the majority of the UK public are frantically petitioning Westminster to step up and take proactive strides towards helping Ukrainians flee or to simply those defending themselves from invading forces. God knows Britain has sold arms to enough violent despots in the past that they could use a little good karma in that area. Instead, shamefully, our government and right-wing press have hidden themselves safely behind their manufactured fight bank against the woke, dismissing calls for empathy with a smirk. I've seen the transgender people being tangentially blamed for a lot of ridiculous things over the past few years, from global warming to overflowing ICU during the pandemic, but being blamed for starting an entire war is really a new one for me. Being the right go-to scapegoat though, it shouldn't have been a surprise. Regular spectator columnist and darling of social conservatism, Brendan O'Neill, wasted no time in implicating the West's exception of transgender people as a catalyst for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Writing in spite, O'Neill claims that in buying into the nonsense of transgenderism, Putin sees a Western weakness and a chance to increase his own strength. Of course, there's a historical parallel to this line of thinking that's large enough to bounce off O'Neill's forehead. Raging against the supposedly decadent and liberal days of the Weimar Germany in the 1920s was a rhetorical ploy used to bolster support for the Nazi party, who accused opponents of being cultural Bolsheviks, 
a precursor to the cultural Marxist tag used today. This sentiment of blaming Putin's actions on the West's tolerance or questioning white privilege has been echoed throughout a number of articles and comments in these last few days. Even in the face of a bloody and shocking war, the grift continues and we know how invested the Conservative government remains in selling it to, selling it to Brexit Britain. Having spent the past few years painting the image of foreigners stepping into British soil as the beginning of the downfall of the empire, now we come to a scenario where Ukrainian refugees are fleeing a deadly war and all the UK can offer is a job-picking fruit for any willing to spend just a little time filling out forms, finding a UK sponsor and scraping together at least £1,270 from the bombed-out remains of their home to apply. It's downright disgusting that the UK remains so hostile to the thought of refugees finding safe passage during an unjustifiable war that, even if as orphanages in Ukraine have been shelled by Russian forces, upon a few-day war crime, the UK is still holding the gate shut to those in need. It is, however, a consistent stance for a government that has courted ideas such as offshore detention centres for immigrants. The UK's response to the invasion of Ukraine revealed a deeply sick political culture in Britain, one that sees social progress as despot encouraging weakness and refugees as the threat to the contradictory far-right fairy tale of outsiders coming in to steal our jobs or take our benefits, delete where appropriate. While at home, our very own Tory MSP Bartle Fraser has seen an opportunity to link the Yes movement to Putin for his own ends seemingly overlooking both David Cameron's plea to the Russian leader to oppose Scottish independence in 2014 and the obscene amount of money from Putin's friends that has flooded into his own political party. Sluggishly awaking from another Downing Street hangover, the Tories have finally started to make moves to sanction their own benefactors, but average Ukrainians have so far been left in the cold by Johnson's anti-woke administration and the British institutions that have only sought to use their plight for their own ends. It has been a purely reactive form of global political action, with no proactive attempts to help the Ukrainian people in need. Which, in itself, was a mark of Johnson's time at number 10, to wait and wait and take action at the last minute, often too late, always too little. Instead of a tangible response, we have an empty British jingoism and fantastical calls for Boris Johnson to lead Europe to victory none of which can hold a candle to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's stone-cold quip. I need ammunition, not a ride, in response to an offer to be evacuated. Sanctions are all very well, but there are human lives on the line that need immediate help, and Britain's institutions need to set aside their own petty agendas to provide it. And that was a comment piece by Stephen Payton. From The National, Monday the 28th of February 2022, from the comment section. Why Colleges Need More Funding to Support Student Mental Health By John Vincent John Vincent is the Principal of Glasgow Clyde College and Lead Principal for Mental Health on behalf of Scotland's College Principals Group and the author of this comment, please. Mental health services provided by Scotland's colleges need additional long-term funding if they're going to maintain the care which students desperately need. Money has been available in recent years to provide services, including counselling and invaluable supports for students struggling to complete their studies against the backdrop of the pandemic, financial worries, stress and anxiety. 
However, this funding has a huge question mark hanging over it. The looming £51.9 million cut to college budgets, including the loss of additional money which came to colleges during the pandemic, risks the ability of colleges to fully support their students. The extra funding provided during the pandemic means that while demand for support has grown, waiting times to access college mental health support has fallen. That will not be the case in the future without the funding to make it happen. This week, the Mental Health Foundation Scotland and Colleges Scotland have launched the country's largest ever study to the, into the mental health and well-being of students across the country's 26 colleges. Thriving Learners is one of the largest studies of student mental health that has ever taken place in the UK and aims to help inform recommendations on prevention, early intervention and support. The Mental Health Foundation has already completed the research process for universities in Scotland and the results were published in November 2021 were stark. They revealed nearly three quarters, 74%, of university students reported having low well-being, with more than one-third of university students surveyed 36%, reporting moderately severe or severe symptoms of depression. We hope that thousands of college students will take part in the survey to help college leaders understand the scale of problems students are facing. As a college principal, I know firsthand that the mental health support is part of the reason why so many students have the scaffolding around them that they need to complete their studies go on to join the workforce or journey into higher education. The more support we can give our students, the more we're helping them to achieve their potential, improve their opportunities and change their lives. Every college can point to the successes of mental health support provided as a result of specific additional funding in recent years. But when that funding disappears, so will many of those services and the resulting positive outcomes they've delivered. Colleges are helping students locally and directly at a time when we know the pressure in NHS mental health services is extreme. Every college leader has seen over the past two years a range of issues impact on our students. Isolation, financial difficulty, health problems and anxiety. And these problems won't go away. Students deserve investment to surround them with support and colleges need specific additional long-term funding College students deserve every support we can muster for them. To find out more about Thriving Learners and participate in the survey, visit www.mentalhealth.org.uk slash Scotland slash supporting hyphen students hyphen thrive. And that was an article by the Principal of Glasgow Kai College, John Vincent. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, from the Politics section, Michelle Thompson, SNP MSP apologises for tweet about Ukraine crisis by Gregor Young. An SNP MSP has apologised for an insensitive social media post about the crisis in Ukraine. Falkirk East, East representative Michelle Thompson was criticised after suggesting Ukraine's response to the Russian invasion could hold lessons for an independent Scotland. Responding on Monday to a report that leaders in Kyiv were signing a fast-tracked application to join the EU as Russian forces close in in the capital, the MSP wrote it just goes to show what political will can achieve. Remember this Scotland? The post has now been removed, with Thompson apologising for the comment. She tweeted later on Monday night, 
I noted and then tweeted something earlier that was insensitive regarding Ukraine. Like everyone, my first thoughts are sympathy for the people there. Apologies if I offended anyone. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky penned an emergency application to the EU as Russia steps up its attacks on Ukrainian cities. Kharkiv has been wrought by missile attacks in the city centre, with dozens of civilians reportedly killed in a flurry of attacks across the country. A 40-mile column of Russian tanks and heavy armour is also reported to be making its way to Kyiv. On Monday, Zelensky requested fast-track approval to the EU. Ukraine's legislator posted an image of the president, clad in military gear, signing the document. Thompson responded, Delighted for Ukraine, it's just got to show what political will can achieve. Remember this, Scotland... Her initial response to the tweet drew criticism from opposition politicians. Kirsten Sullivan, Labour councillor for West Lothian, replied, I don't think the Ukrainian people are delighted as they try to survive, hour by hour, not knowing if they will see loved ones again. What a crash thing to tweet and try to make a cheap political point. There's no if about it. Tory MSP Stephen Kerr added, We've got... Michelle Thompson modelling a breakup of the UK and Putin's invasion of U- Ukraine. This is not normal behaviour for a political party. In that article is by Gregor Young. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, from the news section. Nicola Sturgeon's pleas on waiving visas for Ukraine refugees snubbed by Tories, by Gregor Young. Nicola Sturgeon has made a direct appeal to Boris Johnson to waive visa requirements for Ukrainians seeking refuge, but her plea fell in deaf ears, with Priti Patel ruling out a waiver hours later. The Home Secretary cited security concerns, although she added that up to 100,000 people could come to the UK as a result of a bespoke humanitarian route. The First Minister called on the Prime Minister to step in and allow anyone fleeing the Russian invasion to come to the UK, saying the paperwork can be sorted out later on. The UK government announced on Sunday that only those with immediate family in Britain would be able to seek refuge. Speaking during a visit to Aberdeen yesterday, the First Minister said, I think the UK's current position on refuge for people fleeing from Ukraine is unacceptable, and if it doesn't change and change substantially very soon, it risks... At a time when we should be building maximum unity, being embarrassing for the UK. I'm calling on the Prime Minister, I'm appealing to the Prime Minister to follow the example of Ireland, follow the example of the entire European Union and have a situation, effectively, where anyone from Ukraine who is seeking refuge in the UK is allowed entry to the UK with no visa requirements and the paperwork can be sorted later on. The position announced by the Prime Minister last night Restricting that kind of approach, not even just family members of people already here, but to immediate family members, it's woefully inadequate. It doesn't meet the moment. This is the time to step up and do everything we can to support Ukrainians, and I hope we will see significant movement from the UK government over the course of today. Ruling out a waiver, Patel said, security and biometric checks a fundamental part of our visa approval process worldwide and will continue as they did for the evacuation of people from Afghanistan. 
That is vital to keep British citizens safe and to ensure that we are helping those in genuine need, particularly as Russian troops are now infiltrating Ukraine and merging into Ukrainian forces. Intelligence reports also state the presence of extremist groups and organisations who threaten the region, but also our domestic homeland. We know all too well what Putin's Russia is willing to do, even on our soil, as we saw through the Salisbury attack. The SNP at Westminster earlier demanded that the UK government follow the lead of the EU by waiving visa requirements. The EU confirmed that it would take in Ukrainian refugees for up to three years without asking them to go through the paperwork of applying for asylum first. And, regardless of whether or not they have a family connection in any EU member state, the SNP Shadow Home Secretary Stuart Macdonald MP said, The Home Secretary's announcement, or lack of, was a dereliction of duty and it fell a million miles short of what was needed at this critical time to support Ukrainian refugees in desperate need of our help. The grim reality is that the UK government is alone amongst our European allies in forcing Ukrainians seeking safety to jump through its restrictive visa hoops to reach sanctuary here. It is even more alone in legislating to criminalise, marginalise and impoverish those who seek asylum through its anti-refugee bill. The UK government must match its rhetoric with real action and commit to following the lead of our EU partners by waiving visa requirements for Ukrainian refugees. Anything less than that is unacceptable. And that was an article by Gregor Young. From The National, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, from the news section, Scottish Government Financial Strategy will herald Step Change, Kate Forbes says, by journalist Gregor Young. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes is set to publish a financial strategy that will herald a step change in Scotland's economic approach. The National Strategy for Economic Transformation will be unveiled on Tuesday after months of deliberations with business, academics and trade unions, amongst others. One of the key announcements is expected to be an investor panel led by the First Minister. The Scottish Government also said ahead of its publication that the report would include a detailed economic analysis and a plan for delivering the decade-long strategy. Speaking ahead of the publication of the plan, Forbes said, The National Strategy for Economic Transformation offers renewed clarity of our vision for Scotland with a ruthless focus on delivery. We've consulted with business, academia, trade unions and more to develop this strategy and it will be a collective national endeavour over the next decade to shift the dial on our economy becoming fairer, wealthier and greener. She added, This strategy marks a step change in how we approach the economy and it will help us to deliver the best economic performance possible for Scotland within the current constitutional constraints. We want Scotland to be a more resilient and more entrepreneurial economy in which everybody can share in our success. As we look beyond the pandemic, we must be ready to seize the economic opportunities that come with achieving net zero and becoming a fairer country. And that piece is by Gregor Young. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Open goal in talks to take over Scottish Football Club by Ewan Payton. It has been reported that Open Goal are in talks to take over a lower league Scottish football club. 
The podcast giants are said to be ready to complete a shock takeover of Lowland League side Brunhill FC. The podcast, which is hosted by Cy Ferry, regularly features Andy Halliday, Paul Slane and Kevin Kyle in its lineup. As well as their weekly recorded episodes, the group have performed in front of live audiences across venues in Scotland, including the Ovo Hydro. Now, the Daily Mail claims that they see taking over the Glasgow-based Broomhill Sports Club as the next stage in boosting their audience numbers. Ferry is a player coach at Peterhead, and the report states that the former Celtic and Dundee player could take his first steps in management with Broomhill should a deal be complete. The Mail says talks are ongoing but have yet to be finalised. Broomhill Sports Club, previously known as BSC Glasgow, currently sit 14th place in the 18-team Lowland League. They play their home games at the Intradil Stadium in Alloa. This article was by Ewan Payton. From The National of Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, from the comment section... Unionist abuse of female Scots writers must stop. We need women's voices. By Emma Guinness. There are few women who create in Scots, and even then, unless the abuse of female Scots writers and speakers by extremist unionists stops, their work may never see the light of day. The first word I ever wrote in Scots was mammy. It wasn't a conscious decision. I was recounting something I'd heard while working in a Glasgow care home. Then, 17, I was studying English at a Scottish university where I was exposed to canonical English literature and certainly no Scots texts, least of all by women. A seed was nevertheless growing in my mind to tell my stories but it wasn't until I moved to Dublin, where there's a much stronger own voices literary tradition, that I found the courage to write in full Scots. I grew up speaking Scots, but like many other speakers, I had it drummed out of me. If you can't speak properly, you won't be able to spell properly. And corrections like, it's butter, not butter. I remember feeling bad. I was told I was doing something wrong, and as a child, I didn't even understand what it was. Scott's writing came to me so much more naturally than writing in English ever did. It made my characters come to life, and resulted in my first novel, Be Good to Your Mammy, which is a rare example of an entirely female-voiced Scott's text by a woman. This wasn't something I did to intentionally be different. I had a story to tell and women's voices were a part of it. But after it was published by Unbound in August of this year, I learned the sad reason why we rarely hear women's stories in Scots. Scots speakers face classism. It's just glorified slang. But for women who create in the language, there's a degree of sexism at play too. The horrific treatment of Scots poet Len Penny on Twitter is the best known current example. 
Despite the success of her Scots Word of the Day content, because she is a woman, she has been subject to a barrage of abuse and the majority of it has been entwined with her gender, with a recent hate tirade involving sexist language resulting in one man being permanently banned from the platform. This man was one of a very vocal group of unionists online who have taken to harassing women who create in Scots. And just days after Penny left Twitter, I found myself subjected to similar abuse. Dr Michael Dempster, director of the Scots Language Centre, created a hashtag Scotstober hashtag, which encourages people to create in Scots every day of October. I wrote a Scots poem, and within hours of posting it, a man retweeted another post where I said that Scots shouldn't be politicised, and wrote, Who the effing describes themselves as a poet effing idiots? That's who get an effing job. Ironically, I didn't describe myself as a poet, but it wouldn't have mattered if I had, or if I'd been unemployed. The problem is that my use of Scots made me a target, and so too did my gender. There were a lot of men using the hashtag too, but this person had singled me out over them. The fact that I was called an idiot, too, reflects the continued classism associated with Scots, which, contrary to what critics say, gives speakers transferable skills that can be useful in a variety of contexts. For example, as a journalist, my literacy in Scots and English made it a lot easier to take to writing American English. While there are men and non-binary people who write in Scots, they have escaped the worst of the extremist unionist abuse. Scots author Colin Burnett told me, I believe women creatives who produce works in Scots are in the vanguard of the Scots language movement. They seem to be the focal point of attack by those who contest the legitimacy of the Scots language. If you take a scroll through any extremist unionist Twitter, you'll see that it's not just women who write Scots who are a target, but transgender women too. One recent example is an account that lampooned Penny's Scots Word of the Day content. Their pinned tweet was a transphobic declaration that women should be reduced to their reproductive organs, failing to take into account the fact that some women don't have breasts for medical reasons, including mastectomies. Dempster said of the issue, Our literature is crying out for a diversity of voices expressing themselves in Scots, Publishing on social media is invaluable to our marginalised language community coming to voice. The intersection of additional prejudice Scots speakers face oughtn't to be a further example to their self-expression in Scots. The abuse of Scots speaking and writing women isn't about politics, it's about classism and misogyny. And the independence debate has given some extremist unionists a platform to express these hateful views. Since publishing Mammy, 
I've been asked why I wrote the book in Scots. The answer is simple, because that's how the characters talk. But until the abuse of female Scots creators stops, this will be seen as something more than trying to give voice to people whose stories deserve to be told. This article was by Emma Guinness. Recorded from the National on the 1st of March 2022 from the Culture Section, exploring the history and sites of the industry along the River Clyde by Kayleen Gallagher. In Primary 5, we learned Kenneth McKellar's Song of the Clyde, Of All Scottish Rivers is Dearest to Me, a sang with 60 other Glaswegian school kids. It flows, flows from Lead Hills all the way to the sea. That is not quite right. The streams that flow from Lead Hills through quarries and crooks to Elvin Food and Abington are not the Clyde. They only feed it. Some say the river source is water meetings, where these streams meet others by a quiet road to an old convent. Others say it is a stream called Little Clyde, which thousands of people cross every day on the M74. I parked at the entrance to Clyde Wind, one of Europe's largest wind farms, and crossed a nobled grazing field to find the barn whose babble is drowned out by the rush of roads. Its peace has always been disturbed. This field was once a Roman marching camp, and it is easy to imagine it is the kind of ancient service station for soldiers heading north. Now it is the site of a DVSA lorry way station. I followed the burn upstream through a wood under pines whose arthritic stumps and broken wands were draped with moss and lichen, out onto the hillside where it first surfaces among towering turbines. These Clydeside industries, logistics, energy, lumber, were as important in ages past as now. From here, the Roman road follows the Clyde to Crawford, where a ruined castle provides views of the interknotted river road and railway. Further downstream, Tinto climbs above, a lonely hill that was a strategic point for watching over Clydesdale since at least the Bronze Age. From Tinto and from the child-sized Puthcon Law beside it, you can see the river feed the fertile meadows of Lanarkshire and flow down from the hills to the south. From this perspective, it is clear why good roads were always vital to connect this watershed dale with Lanark and Bigger and the cities beyond them. In 1766, the erstwhile Jacobite James Stewart wrote about roads along the Clyde, improving them, he said, would allow the treasures of the hills and the grain and textiles of the mills to reach their markets. It would support small manufacture and better paid work for the people. In the north of England, he said, pioneering roads and other public works in Rochdale and Burnley led industry to prosper among Barren Hill country. There was no better than that which in Scotland lies from Crawford, jo Crawford John to Lead Hills and Moffat. When low wages pressured them to go elsewhere, good connections let people keep the countryside as home. Roads must suit heavy wagons, Stuart said, not just horses. They must be properly covered or carriages would cut through and cause potholes. Local authorities in charge of roads generally let them be too far gone before repairing them. But Stuart had a plan. Not only should roadworks provide regular local jobs, but if on every stretch of road someone was employed to do repairs, then roads would be robust, workers fairly paid and locals not cut off. Between Bigger and Lanark, the Clyde flows northwest and swings back southwards, creating a shape roughly like a bowler hat, with bridges at its eastern and western brims and another at the top. One drizzly Saturday, I drove to this Clyde and Cranny, and on the road between the bridges at Hindford and at Thankerton, a sign invited me to discover Carmichael. Since it was both lunchtime and raining, I stopped and found a tourist shop and cafe. 
friendly if a little frumpy, among the buildings of a working farm. Marie, the shop assistant come to her guide, told me of the covenanting con conventicles and Jacobite adventures. Every few years, she explained, Carmichael's of the world gather here to renew their clan connections and replace their tartan ties. The rest of the time, the interior of the ancient chiefdom runs a small family business specialising in sumptuous venison. As I poked about the antiquarian books, I overheard a customer on his way to a dog show in Lanark saying, the rain was not heavy but thick mizzle. I soaked it up. Driving past drooping snowdrops to explore the mills near the western bridge before I headed to higher and it turned out drier ground at Pittening. In a 19th century journal that this village provided excellent views across the Clyde to Carstairs, but what struck me first were the peculiar red roads. My inspection of the infrastructure was obviously unsubtle, as the local couple gardening on the village asked if I was a surveyor. When I said no, but I was intending to write a newspaper article, they leant on their spades and told me about the roads made, Susan explained, from red granite from the local quarry at Coburn. When the tarmac roads a bit, the road grows at night, and the children scuff their knees on the hard granite, but not for much longer. They've stopped making them that way. My men led to grievance, and soon Finn, spade in hand, was telling me the saga of the bridges. The Carstairs Bridge was shot, despite long local protest. Without it, the only way west was over the steep one at Thinkerton. We need crampons and an ice axe to go over it. Locals had been trying to put the village on the map. But if one more overweight lorry crunched into the bridge, he said, this community would be that bit more cut off. Growing up in Linlithgow, the fastest way for Finn to reach his family in Yorkshire was through Thankerton and other places like Quothcun. Now folk from the central belt have never heard of these places. After some further peregrinations, I was warned not to get the locals started on the roads. But the roads of East Clydesdale area are, I thought, a classical and critical subject. After all, I had planned to go to Carstairs next. Had I known about the closed bridge, I probably would have never travelled to this pretty parish. But since I was there, I found my view, a rainbow appeared, and the evening sun shone in Carstairs, Carnworth, and the Clyde's onward path to Lanark. Attractions. Crawford Castle, an atmospheric room, is a good detour from the M74. Tinto Hill Tea Room is a welcome spot for lunch at the base of the hill. Clothkin Law is a quicker alternative. Carmichael Estate Farm Shop is well stocked and has a small museum. The Bistro does light lunches and main meals. Petanane has great views and the House of Westraw is worth the short walk from the village to see. That article was by Kaylin Gallagher. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of March. Blaze on extremely challenging ground in Sutherland. An article issued by the National News Desk. Firefighters have battled a ferocious wildfire for hours on extremely challenging ground in the Highlands. Crews were called to flames stretching one and a half miles in Rogat in Sutherland at about 2.30pm on Tuesday afternoon. Pictures show firefighters on a steep hillside extinguishing the blaze. Four fire stations assisted, with firefighters from Balintour, Laeg, Golsby and Dornach all called to help tackle the flames. Ballantour Fire Station shared a video showing the intensity of the wildfire, adding the comment, despite all the rain of late and the ground being sodden, the winds burn ferociously. Hard, hot work with backpacks and beaters. The crew was paged at 14.36 to a wildfire at Rogut, along with crews from Laeg, Golsby and Dornach. A 1.5-mile firefront on extremely challenging ground took over five hours to bring to a safe conclusion. 
appliance home checked and ready to go again. An article issued by the National News Desk. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of March. Glasgow City Council workers back strike action in equal pay dispute. An article written by Craig Meehan, multimedia journalist. Council workers, including school cleaning and catering staff, have voted to back strike action in an equal pay dispute. The GMB union said members have voted to support strikes over its claim that Glasgow City Council has failed to resolve outstanding equal pay settlements and replace its discriminatory pay and grading system. Almost all of the 54% of members who returned ballots in services including Glasgow Health and Social Care Partnership, school cleaning and catering and parking services backed the walkouts. The union said it could mean a fresh wave of equal pay strikes affecting these services from as early as the end of March, with disruption also possible in the run-up to the local authority elections at the beginning of May. The local authority agreed to pay out at least £500 million in 2019, following a long-running equal pay row. Women claimed they were paid £3 an hour less than men in similarly graded roles after a 2006 pay review aimed at ensuring pay parity. GMB Scotland organiser Sean Bailey said, Our members need equal pay justice and an end to the discriminatory pay and grading system that remains in place. That's the clear message this ballot result sends to the council officials, who should be negotiating properly with our claimant groups and to every councillor seeking election in May. The council's liabilities are growing every working hour of every working day, and the cost will likely run into the hundreds of millions yet again. So the situation is critical for our members, the services they deliver, and the city's finances. That's why we need an urgent negotiation process to be conducted in good faith between the council and the claimant groups if strike action is to be avoided. Glasgow City Council has been contacted for comment. An article written by Craig Meehan. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of March. Joseph Kelly's sentencing for Captain Tom Tweet delayed after he's removed from court. An article written by Gregor Young. The sentencing of a man who sent an offensive message about fundraising hero Captain Sir Tom Moore has been delayed after he was led out of court by a police officer. Joseph Kelly was set to be sentenced at Lanark Sheriff Court after he tweeted the grossly offensive message on February the 3rd last year that the only good Brit soldier is a deed one, burn old fella, burn, just one day after the 100-year-old died. Moments before the 36-year-old was set to receive his sentence from Sheriff Adrian Cottam on Wednesday, he entered the court and appeared to refuse to sit down in the public gallery and looked like he was stretching. Mr Kelly of Castle Milk in Glasgow was then taken out of the court by a police officer. Minutes later, his case was called by the clerk, but Mr Kelly did not appear. His solicitor, Tony Callahan told the court his client was unable to attend. Sheriff Cottam delayed the sentencing for four weeks, and Mr Kelly is now expected to appear before the court again on March the 30th. Mr Kelly was found guilty of sending the message following a trial at the court last month, with Sheriff Cottam saying his gratuitous insult about Sir Tom was made with only offence in mind. At the time, Sheriff Cottam told Mr Kelly, this is a man who'd become known as a national hero, who stood for the resilience of the people of a country struggling with a pandemic and the services trying to protect them. His statute and the view of society towards him must be looked at in that light, and therefore any comment likewise. What the accused chose to write, when and how it was said, can only be regarded as grossly offensive. 
dropped the charge under the Communications Act, said Mr Kelly made a post to the public using social media that was grossly offensive or of an indecent, obscene or menacing character, and that he did utter offensive remarks about Captain Sir Tom Moore, now deceased. An article written by Gregor Young. The National Politics on Wednesday the 2nd of March. Nicola Sturgeon hails BBC journalist Clive Myrie after Ukraine report. An article written by Gregor Young. Nicola Sturgeon has paid tribute to inspiring war correspondents after a BBC news anchor gave a frank account of reporting from a Kiev bomb shelter. The First Minister hailed the unsung heroes in response to Clive Myrie's explanation of why he and other journalists are staying in a live war zone to report on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The foreign correspondent, speaking on air to his colleague Christian Fraser, summed up the thoughts of war reporters as they shelter underground in Kiev. None of us were forced to come here, he said. It's part of our job. We feel that we want to tell the story of this war and tell it accurately and fairly. That's so important because there is so much... I was going to use the word crap, but I might as well. There is so much crap out there that it's misinformation, propaganda and nonsense. And what you're trying to do, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, Channel 4, ITV, Sky, the BBC, you're trying to be truthful to this story. You're trying to represent the people who are having to cower down here. You want to represent them fairly. You've got to weigh that against your own personal safety, and we have a security team here. We all talk about how much further we can go covering this story, when perhaps we should pull out. Mr Murray explained journalists were concerned about how they would be treated in what he considered to be the inevitable victory of Vladimir Putin's forces. They're going to win this, he said. I mean, they've got the force of power, so let's not pretend that the Ukrainian army is potentially going to win this struggle because there are simply too many Russian troops. The BBC journalist continued, What's their attitude going to be to Western journalists? That's something you've got to weigh up as well. I arrived here on the eve of war last Tuesday. I actually thought I was going to be getting out three or four days later because no one believed Vladimir Putin would actually launch this all-out invasion. And I'm still here. It's a day-to-day thing, really, as to deciding how long you're going to stay and what it is you're trying to achieve. Miss Sturgeon responded to a clip of Mr Myrie's interview after it was posted on Twitter. She commented, Journalists like Clive Myrie and so many others who report from war zones really are unsung heroes. Their professionalism, calm under pressure and sheer bravery is inspiring. Journalism at its very best. Mr Myrie gave his report on Tuesday as a huge Russian convoy made its way to the capital. Cities across the country have been subjected to brutal bombing campaigns, with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky accusing Mr Putin of waging a war of terror on the civilian population. An article written by Gregor Young. Recorded from the National on the 2nd of March 2022 from the Culture section. Google Box viewers demand subtitles to understand New Scottish Couple by Rebecca Newlands. Google Box has welcomed its first Scottish couple in six years, but their debut has been met with some issues. On Friday night, Glasgow couple Roisin23 and Joe25 gave their thoughts on programmes including Sunday Morning, Love is Blind and Teen First Dates. However, some viewers were left struggling to understand the pair's accents and even took to social media calling for subtitles to be used for their scenes. One person wrote, can we have subtitles for the Scots on Googlebox, please? Another added, had to switch on my subtitles when the new Scottish couple spoke. A third asked, sorry, but can we have subtitles on Googlebox for the new couple? 
Despite some issues, many viewers were delighted to see some Scottish representation on Googlebox. One wrote, Well done Googlebox for putting pure Scottish on and giving them no subtitles, the way it should be. Another said, Enjoying the authentic Scottish folk on Googlebox. You can tell by the liberal yet skillful use of profanities. Roisin and Joe's introduction to the show comes after complaints about the lack of Scots on the popular Channel 4 show. The issue was even raised in the House of Commons by Tory MP Douglas Ross during a Scottish Affairs Committee session. Googlebox is on Friday evenings at 9pm on Channel 4. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. The National, March 3. Aberfeldy businessman pleads with Home Office over sponsoring Ukraine refugees. Report by Craig Meehan. A Scottish business owner is pleading with the Home Office to speed up his application to sponsor two Ukrainian nationals. Gavin Price, owner of the Shehalyan Hotel and Fountain Bar, has offered to provide jobs for two people fleeing Ukraine and said he will pay for accommodation, flights and cover the costs of any work visas. The Aberfeldy businessman said he was struck by the images and videos coming from Ukraine following the Russian invasion. He said he was disappointed with the UK government's initial response to refugees, but said he is hopeful it will continue to change as pressure mounts. The Scot pointed to more generous policies in Europe, such as in Poland, which has welcomed hundreds of thousands of refugees. Price, along with his MP and MSP, are now pleading with the Home Office to reduce the amount of time it takes to sponsor a Ukrainian national, warning it could be up to three months. Three months, Price warned, that many people in Ukraine cannot afford to wait. The businessman said that between what he was seeing on the news and the UK's initial response, he felt compelled to help. He told the National, What is going on there is atrocious, and surely whatever anyone can do to help, surely has to be a good thing. I was really disappointed with the initial stance of the UK government. You see the stance taken by the EU, and that's the humanitarian thing to do. This shouldn't be a time to put obstacles in people's way. It's our European neighbours. I'd like to think Scotland's stance would be a lot different. Scotland is a welcoming country and we want to help people. Price said the mood in Scotland is undoubtedly one of kindness, compassion and generosity towards Ukraine. He said, it's Scotland's nature. It's overwhelming the feeling in the country. I think your instincts are to help. I would like to see a relaxation on all migrants coming in from Ukraine. There shouldn't be obstacles put in their way. They need to get out of the country first and worry about the rest later. But the hotel and bar owner warned the current system in the UK takes too long, with his visa sponsorship potentially taking months. He said, when I first inquired about going through visas this morning, they said it could take eight weeks to three months for me to register to sponsor, which is obviously not what's going to help in the short term. 
So a different policy to let people into the country, not just to work, but refugees too, is important. If we could do that through sponsoring, I know it's a drop in the ocean what we are offering to do, but it is something we can do to help. Price said he had been blown away with the support he has seen for his efforts to sponsor Ukrainians. There's a desire in Scotland to do this, and we should try and make it happen, he said. Price said Deputy First Minister John Swinney and SNP MP Pete Wishart had both been in contact with him to help speed up his visa application. Swinney said Price's offer showed the widespread generosity on display from Scots. He told the National, I am grateful to Gavin and the entire team at the Shehalyan Hotel for their generous sponsorship offer. This gesture speaks to the wide level of empathy and support that exists for Ukrainians across Perthshire and our collective determination to do our bit to alleviate their suffering. Along with my colleague Pete Wishart, MP, I have made initial inquiries regarding how best to take forward Mr Price's offer. As immigration matters are still the responsibility of the UK government, any decision relating to the entry of Ukrainian nationals would ultimately lie with the Home Office. I am very clear, however, that I am supportive of Mr Price's offer and of a broader change in policy to allow Ukrainian refugees to enter the UK without a visa, as is being implemented within the European Union. Wishart said, I am thankful to Mr Price for his kind sponsorship offer and to the many voluntary organisations and individuals in my constituency helping out with resources and finance for the people of Ukraine. I am now seeking to clarify what avenues are available for Mr Price to take to ensure that his offer can be fulfilled as swiftly as possible. The UK government has been approached for comment. Report by Craig Meehan. The National, March 3. Nicola Sturgeon says 10-year economic plan integral to independence. Report by Ninian Wilson. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has backed the Scottish Government's new economic strategy as integral and essential to Scottish independence. The strategy was unveiled by Finance Secretary Kate Forbes, who set out a 10-year economic plan that she said would offer a radical and bold approach to supporting businesses, growing the economy and reducing poverty. Following the launch of the National Strategy for Economic Transformation in Dundee on Tuesday, the proposals received a mixed response. Scottish Trades Union Congress General Secretary Ros Foyer said it was merely paying lip service to creating a well-being economy. Foyer said, The National Strategy for Economic Transformation has a sprinkling of good ideas and we have successfully argued for some strong lines on the importance of fair work, decent pay 
and the role of trade unions. But overall, it is a missed opportunity to address the challenges before us and make real transformational change. Businessman Sir Tom Hunter also suggested the strategy needs to be more business-led and improve productivity in the public sector. However, other groups such as the Federation of Small Businesses and the Scottish Retail Consortium welcomed the new strategy, praising its clarity and ambition. Discussing the response to the strategy, Sturgeon said, It is a fact of life and a healthy part of a democracy that people will criticise government strategies. We have focused on delivering this strategy. I think it is the right one. It's got the right level of ambition, but more importantly, it's got the right focus on delivery. The STUC were part of the team that put the strategy together and we'll work with them. We'll work with businesses to deliver it. I know Kate Forbes is absolutely focused on ensuring that we realise the potential of Scotland in the decades to come and the strategy puts in place the right building blocks for that. I would appeal to everybody across the trade union movement and the business community for all of us to come together right now and focus on delivering the ambition that Kate Forbes set out in the strategy. Asked how the long-term strategy fits with the SNP government's ambition to leave the UK, Sturgeon said, it is integral and essential. Independence does not sit apart from the ambition to make Scotland a prosperous country economically and a fairer country socially. It's part and parcel of that. The powers of independence mean that we can do more to deliver on those ambitions. This is not something that is separate. It's all part and parcel of us wanting Scotland to be as successful as it can be and thinking about how we best equip ourselves to deliver on that ambition. In her speech to announce the strategy, Forbes said, This strategy pushes as hard as possible with Scotland's current economic powers, knowing that the macro-physical, monetary and economic levers are all largely reserved along with key policies on migration or energy. We are separately working on an economic prospectus that outlines what additional steps we would take to make Scotland successful with all the powers of an independent country. That will be published in due course, but for now we focus on straining every sinew to succeed with what we have. Report by Ninian Wilson. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Celtic and Rangers Champion League hopes could be impacted by new UEFA Russia ruling, by Aidan Smith. Celtic and Rangers could be set to benefit from Russia's UEFA ban with a Champions League spot now almost guaranteed. The winner of the Scottish Premiership was already in pole position to secure a spot in Europe's elite tournament. 
But now, with the news that UEFA will be banning Russian clubs from participating in their conditions due to the invasion of Ukraine, Scotland looks set to benefit. With Russia dropping out of the coefficient table, Scotland would jump up a place, meaning the Premiership winners would land an automatic group stage spot. It would also mean that the runners-up would enter the non-champions path of the Champions League at the third round qualifying phase. As a result, group stage European football is guaranteed until Christmas via the way of the Champions League, Europa League or Conference League. Scotland will also have a representative in the Europa League in the playoff round stage for the winner of the Scottish Cup while two other clubs will enter the second and third qualifying stages of the conference competition. Russia has been suspended from all UEFA and FIFA competitions, including the World Cup playoffs. Continental bosses UEFA and global governors FIFA have made the joint decision on a temporary expulsion for Russia from all club and national fixtures. Both UEFA and FIFA have removed Russia from all fixtures until Quotes, football can again be a vector for unity and peace amongst people. A joint UEFA and FIFA statement confirmed the move that will further isolate Russia's sporting situation amid the invasion of Ukraine. There is still a possibility that the Russian Football Union could appeal this at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. This article was by Aidan Smith. From The National, Thursday the 3rd of March 2022, from the sports section. David Goodwillie return to Clyde FC leads ladies team to resign in protest by Zander Richards. The Clyde ladies football team have all resigned from the team in protest at the return of the quotes rapist David Goodwillie to the men's team. Goodwillie had played for Clyde FC since 2017 but was signed by Wraith Rovers in an extremely controversial move at the, at the start of February. The player had been labelled a rapist by a civil court who ordered him to pay damages of £100,000 to the victim. The outrage at his signing sparked high-level interventions from people such as the First Minister and led the club's then-shirt sponsor, Arthur Val McDermid, to pull her support. The Wraith Rovers ladies' team all stopped playing under the name as a result of Goodwillie's signing, and now Clyde FC's ladies' team has taken a similar step after the forward re-signed on loan. Following the announcement that the 32-year-old would be returning until the end of the season, the ladies' team's general manager and all of its players resigned. In a statement, the team said, we can today confirm the General Manager Stroke Secretary of Clyde Ladies has resigned on hearing the news of the return of David Goodwillie to the club. All of the players in the Ladies team have discussed the situation with the General Manager Secretary and they are all in agreement that we no longer wish to play for Clyde FC. This will start with immediate effect. As a group of female footballers, all we wish to do is to play the sport that we love but due to the current circumstances, we are unable to do this. At this time, we wish to ensure the well-being and privacy of our players. Therefore, we would ask that players are not approached personally for comment regarding this matter. It comes days after both McDermott and Nicola Sturgeon again spoke out against Goodwillie being allowed to play, despite the civil court ruling. This article 
was by Xander Richards. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Union Bears slam Rangers for Celtic Sydney call as irate statement reveals 150th anniversary second thoughts. Rangers fan group the Union Bears have blasted the Idrox board for their decision to take part in a friendly match with Celtic in Australia. The fan group made their feelings known to the club's board with a message at McDermott Park for their game with St Johnston last night. A banner at the front of the away stand read Money over morals, no Derby friendlies. Now the group have backed up their message with a further statement in which they have revealed that they are going ahead with a 150th anniversary display despite the decision by the club. It reads, We are disgusted to learn that our club have plans to take part in a friendly over in Australia against our biggest rivals, though not entirely shocked given the recent over-commercialisation of the club. We made our feelings clear last night and will continue to oppose this match for as long as necessary, taking whatever actions we feel are required. Over the past few months, we as a group have been working tirelessly to create a TIFO to celebrate our club's 150th anniversary. This has taken hundreds of man-hours and cost thousands of pounds, which was raised by the Rangers' support. The news of this despicable friendly has made us reconsider our plans. How can we have a day of celebration while this is hanging over our heads? After much discussion over the past 24 hours, we have come to the decision that the Typho will go ahead despite the disappointment, anger and frustration we currently have towards those from the club behind this narrow-minded, cash-driven decision. The Typhoon is not being done for men in a boardroom with no real emotional attachments to our club. It's being done for us as fans to celebrate 150 years of our magnificent football club. Board members will come and go, but one major consistency at Rangers will always be the supporters. We'd ask all fans inside Ibrox on Saturday to take part in the Typhoon, no matter your feelings towards the disgusting decision that the board has made. This typho is for the four lads that had a dream. It's for our players and managers who have contributed to the club's success. But most importantly, Sunday's typho is for the fans past and present who have stood by the club through thick and thin. So let's not allow them, the board, to take away more from us than they already have. Our club, not theirs. That article was by Aidan Smith. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.